Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Alex. Thanks so much for joining us in this podcast. Such an honor to have you. Thank you for joining. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. I'd like to ask you first, for people maybe first time, maybe listening to you, I would like you to define yourself. Okay. So uh, I'm a researcher who works in uh, Google Zurich. Well, I used to work in the office. Now I'm mostly in this attic. And, uh, well, I joined Google about uh, six years ago already. And uh, before that, I was considering myself a computer vision person. Mm. I thought I knew something about computer vision. and uh, But uh, I was doing like classical computer vision, structure from motion through the reconstructions, segmentation, mm. this kind of stuff. It was uh, I was working for a commercial company in Russia, St. Petersburg. And then uh, once I joined Google, I got introduced to this new generation of neural net works uh, that was uh, getting traction under the name deep learning I was pretty impressed by their capabilities and uh, they were exceeding my expectations of what computers are capable of as a person who thought he knew something about computer vision and then uh, I started to dig into those uh, trying to figure out how good they work realized that well probably no one really knows what's going on inside and they were often being compared with black boxes but uh, i felt that it's more of like just not a black but more of a transparent box of uh, tangled wires but you can like stick your probes everywhere you can try to uh, like uh, inspect any number you can see how it react to various stimulus so and then uh, i started playing with those uh, although i was uh, in an engineering team so this was my like 20% project then i made a few experiments one of them got pretty viral and uh, this machine hallucination thing we call yeah. the dream and then uh, i uh, switched to research full time and uh, i was working on interpretability questions of like trying to reverse engineer neural nets and then uh, there was a moment then uh, where uh, uh, i uh, so a presentation uh, that uh, Michael Levin uh, gave at NERIPS uh, in the year, I think it was December 2019. Mm. And then uh, this presentation, I guess, blew everyone's mind on NERIPS. And mm. uh, he was talking about uh, like levels of computation that's happening in nature. And uh, I guess key insight for me was that uh, nature was doing cognition way, way before uh, like real neural networks were in place and uh, things that uh, essentially neural systems of uh, modern organisms are implementations of a very very ancient uh, principle just uh, tuned for speed but actually all cells in all bodies 
are exchanging various uh, uh, like electrochemical impulses mm. and uh, like signals and the uh, main reason for this computation is uh, coordination of body development and regeneration and uh, so there is a lot of interest in distributed compute that's happening uh, inside all organisms and uh, that led me to think that well, uh, first, I started to share this presentation like with all my friends, with all people I knew. And then uh, once upon a time, I wanted to send this link to someone. And uh, I may, like I did a search for like Michael Levin in my uh, personal inbox just to find this link and found uh, a couple of letters from Michael Levin dated uh, 2015 so at that moment it was like already four years ago uh and turns out that after we published uh, did dream he well there were very many people trying to reach out to me and i didn't feel i didn't feel competent well uh, for, 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 for some of them i just couldn't say anything like i didn't feel confident confident enough to like philosophers were reaching out i I know next to nothing about philosophy. Then, uh, well, biologists were reaching out, and I was like, knew next to nothing about biology. And uh, I thought, oh, I should, well, there are some papers I should dig into them. Well, I just forgot to reply. But then uh, suddenly I realized, oh, wow, he was reaching out. Yeah, I should, <laughs> I should finally reply. And then uh, I thought that actually uh, the, like, okay there is a thing that's called deep learning but actually there is a way in my opinion better name for it differentiable programming that's just uh, the concept where you define some computational structure as being end-to-end -end differentiable and then trying to express what you want as the uh, some loss function and then use uh, some uh, stupid first order uh, optimization method to satisfy objective and this concept uh, well, first of all, it, it sounds like there is literally nothing new to it, and we could have been doing it, like, I don't know, for decades. On the other hand, it happened to be, like, the very core of this concept happened to be surprisingly powerful and flexible. And I thought that, uh, actually, uh, many of the phenomena that Michael was talking in his uh, lecture at NeurIPS uh, could have been uh, actually modeled as just like you know distributed memory so that you uh take uh, like uh, you have a worm and this worm learns something and then you cut out uh, its head and it regenerates in your head but uh, memory memory somehow remains and i thought that actually these kinds of phenomena could be modeled uh in a differentiable in like in an end-to-end -end differentiable setting and uh that's where i tried to start this little uh self-organizing differentiable self-organization effort and uh which i'm currently working on so we started with uh, neural cell automata but uh we are now experimenting with uh, more like more types of models very closely related differentiable uh, cell uh, to neural cell automata neural reaction diffusion systems but also we experimented with like particles coupled with grids physarum uh, type of physarum uh, how do I pronounce it uh, simulations but the thing is that uh, then I uh, 
the idea that uh, you can model like many, 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 many uh, locally communicating agents that uh, execute, uh, well, basically the same behavior in a sense that their behavior is encoded by the same set of weights, although they can have own uh, state vectors that uh, differentiate the behaviors across the uh, space. And then uh, you can model their interaction uh, as an end-to-end differentiable in an end-to-end differentiable simulation, and then try to enforce global objective that will lead to uh, local behaviors that were uh, uh, satisfying these objectives. And uh, then, uh, actually, I, I started to look on uh, like what we were training. Uh, like what, what the whole community of like neural network uh, networks were, were training and thought that actually think of say convolu convolutional neural networks that's that can be interpreted as a cell automata actually like uh, on each layer you get the same rule replicated across the space with only local communication it's just that uh, basically you have a different rule at every step Although there are variants that we're using recurrent convolutional layers that are essentially the same thing. Also, well, there were there was this uh, neural GPU paper that was uh, applying uh, by uh, I think Elias Oxcaver and there are there are there were other authors uh, who were applying the uh, actually I don't, I don't remember who was the first author for the paper unfortunately I'm very bad with the names. Uh, so, uh, and they were applying this uh, cell automata setting to uh, solving uh, like classical problems like multiplication, uh, number, like long number multiplications. So, uh, uh, in a sense, we are not doing anything new, but uh, more looking at uh, various uh, systems from this. Uh, local communication uh, global uh, objective uh, point of view and uh, to this extent say uh, graph neural networks are getting traction and uh, solving many uh, mm -hmm. like responsible for many breakthroughs like you know created uh, protein folding mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, to us it's oh probably they work that well because they are also self-organizing systems. It's like as if those atoms are uh, talking uh, to like by exchanging messages to each other and uh, communicating locally, getting some global thing done. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, so that, that, that's what we are doing currently. We did a few distilled publications uh, and. Uh, yeah, there are a few more in works. Yeah, and I'm curious to ask you uh, because uh, because maybe when you started listening first time to, uh, for example, what you really did very fascinating for neural cell atom automata, and the inspiration, the first step when we see that, what, for example, we try to damage, it can grow. So when you see this kind of inspiration from the nature, how this kind of organism can, what's actually firstly what is. Uh, neural cell automata for people just to understand what's actually is and how we can example in nature so people can relate to that. Okay, so uh, if you are like uh, asking about the model architecture, like what's neural cell automata model, then uh, in our more recent uh, publication that was uh, 
uh, on texture synthesize, we uh, explore this like from uh, three different perspectives. Like first uh, perspective is, okay, uh, let's uh, think about uh, continuous, uh, well, something that looks more like uh, real world uh, continuous uh, space, continuous time domain. Mm -hmm. And let's assume that there are some, uh, well, we can think of either uh, distributions of uh, chemicals, but not chemicals, but probably like very, very small cells that uh, nevertheless can perceive the gradients uh, uh, around uh, of concentrations of some chemicals or other ways to express those signals around their current location. And then uh, each makes, uh, uh, they uh, operate asynchronously and each of them makes a decision and tries to change their state, but all together they must build some consistent pattern, for example. And then uh, the next step is uh, now, of course, uh, to simulate the thing in computer, we have to discretize it. So we discretize the space, we discretize time, we use a simple uh, first order Euler uh, integration scheme to uh, integrate the dynamics of the result in uh, discretized uh, PDE. And uh, what we get is essentially a cell automata. Yes, uh, well, typically cell automata are associated with like discrete states. Our states are uh, vectors of uh, floating point numbers, but actually you can quantize those numbers pretty heavily. At least eight bits seems to work without a problem. And well, I mean, eight bit per channel. So overall we have like maybe around 100 bit, uh, bits per cell. And then, uh, Okay, this is a cell automata that executes the same rule uh, across each step. And also this is a synchronous cell automata because we were trying to avoid this uh, uh, notion of global clock that uh, triggers the update in all cells. And then uh, when we look at, okay, how do you implement this thing with uh, uh, computing uh, primitives that we have today? And turns out that it maps uh, perfectly onto uh, convolutional uh, neural network framework that we have. So essentially you can think of it uh, that that's a residual convolutional network with a per cell dropout that simulates uh, asynchronous updates. And also we use uh, fixed three by three convolutional filters to model the communication part so that we just uh, do finite differences to estimate gradients around the point. And, and well, and in texture, we also use Laplacians. And then uh, one by one convolutions to model the computation that happens uh, inside of each cell for uh, updates. And uh, okay, that's, that's what we call, it's just too, like in our opinion, this is, just uh, one of many possible uh, models uh, that uh, are that we are interested in, and uh, this was just probably the easiest one to implement. implement. Uh, okay, but yeah, that's I hope yeah. I answered the question. Maybe a quick question here because maybe someone I don't know if that could be relevant, but if we apply the concept of growing neural cell automata and to solve problems, for example or yeah, in voxels way, 
But there's just damages mm -hmm. happening in that way. When we see that we can damage and still this mm -hmm. kind of asynchronous, uh, mm -hmm. still this just, yeah, in the, uh, the, the reconstruct its shape. If we can apply that to soft trouble, for example, voxel, mm -hmm. this damage happening. Mm -hmm. I'll say so, like that. Uh, I am desperately looking to implement uh, some of those principles in real life. I mean, uh, transfer uh, the policies, uh, like agent uh, cell policies learned in simulation into real life. Uh, I can like uh, speculate about what I think would be the first uh, ways to do that. Like, and so for narrow cell automata, uh, one thing that uh, I like, I'm a little bit uh, unhappy about this model is it's uh, anisotropy. Like all cells, uh, there is this concept that uh, they all are aligned. They all have a special direction. Basically, each cell knows where the north is and whether uh, west or east is. And uh, actually, in nature, it also happens because uh, like. Um, structures can align to either like most prominent direction where sun rays are coming from or gravity if you are like in the in the wall or magnetic field so for three-dimensional structure you can think of okay uh, you get a gravity vector and you get a magnetic vector which are probably orthogonal so uh, you can establish this coordinate system uh, but implementing this uh, in a like robot, uh, in a like this uh, vo voxel robot cell, actually takes, I'd say, well, this is something I am currently like in the background investigating, and I'm very curious about building actually the uh, like say narrow cell automata cell, so that you can connect them, and uh, in our first publication on narrow say. This growing CA, uh, and then there is a paragraph where we speculate about it, like uh, what would take, uh, how much compute and memory do you need to implement the like single cell? And uh, recently, I found uh, on I think well, there is a company in China that does microcontrollers uh, that cost around I think uh, in in huge quantities you get uh, three cents per microcontroller and they're capable enough. So you need like a hundred something byte of memory. Uh, you need a few kilobytes of read-only memory, like hundred something bytes of RAM, uh, a few kilobytes of uh, ROM, and then, uh, well, uh, totally sufficient uh, compute at, I don't know, one or a few megahertz, and you also need uh, some pins to uh, communicate to neighbors, but this can be like somehow, well, that's, and then uh, I have a thought of, uh, so uh, in the background, maybe one day I'll, I'll try to hack something and implement like a physical uh, neural CA mm -hmm. that you can, like, yeah. uh, main, well, I, I think manufacturing one should be hopefully below one dollar. So having like a hundred dollars should die. Yeah, I, I believe having that in top robotics and robotics in general are really, really game changing. But I'm going to ask you a kind of question that seems still maybe hard to get an answer. Or you try to to think about how can transformation from neural automata this uh, algorithm to 
we go, but what kind of question this is maybe it's kind of the material maybe or I don't know because when you look to nature they don't have this rigid parts or how do you do that efficiently when you see the bees how they can do this efficiently well uh, I don't know much about bees but uh, the type of systems that I like in my opinion are the first candidates for implementing those principles like uh, train something in simulation deploy in real life uh there is well i'm very very new to this i learned about this at the end of last year but turns out there is a whole like movement of uh programmable uh, dna reaction chains where uh even you know uh programming languages are being developed to like you write a code and then this code gets compiled into uh, sequences of DNA strands, and those DNA strands can be then printed on a, so those special printers that print DNA, and those DNA strands are designed in a way that uh, you synthesize those components, mix them, and then, uh, well, th there is, for example, a paper where they uh, then uh, you drop a few uh, droplets in this solution, and then diffusion starts to happen in and then uh, reaction cascades get triggered and you get uh, some pattern that, uh, uh, well, basically those dro initial drops establish the coordinate system and then uh, this uh, sequence of chemical reactions goes into pattern. What they don't, as far as I understand, know how to do, and that's where I hope uh, we can uh, contribute, is how to make those uh, robust to perturbations, how to make those regeneratives regenerative. So now it's uh, those programs are uh, like uh, feed forward cascades so that you, th there are no, they are open. There are no uh, feedback loops that would steer the systems, in, the system into particular desired state. And uh, from, well, like in, in our opinion that uh this uh, field of engineering self-organization is uh like pretty much non-existent yet uh like yeah. all uh, human technology technology all engineering schools are about this uh like fit forward process uh, assembling thing complex things from simple things but then uh basically letting them degrade and just see how fast they degrade and what degrades first what should we strengthen so there is no uh this self uh, regeneration uh, concept of self regeneration in uh, mind and it's actually pretty hard to design those rules in a way but we think that maybe differentiable programming is the like this shortcut how to achieve those behaviors uh because typically there like a lot of uh people in biology well being biologically minded they uh always uh try to use evolution like the, for, for them as far as i understand evolution is like the key principle that's applicable to everything but uh for some things uh, there are quite impressive uh results there but uh, what i feel about is that uh, differentiable programming is a kind of this shortcut, uh, the taking maybe, it's not as powerful uh, as evolution, but it's way cheaper to compute and way more controllable. So hopefully 
that might be a shortcut for getting desired behaviors without running like you know planet for billions of years yeah i'm curious to ask you alex in that case because i think uh, we even ask about um, embodied intelligence here as well we can't evolve everything that could be reduced to fitness. Uh, and when it comes to the um, neuro, uh, uh, neuro automata, I don't know what comes out from it. You think maybe shortcoming or limitation? Because we know that in nature we don't have the optimum solution. Mm-hmm. So how, how you figure out this kind of maybe evolving solution that could be have level of redundancy or increasing the fitness? So uh, that's... Uh, well... So far, we were mostly experimenting with uh, like strictly defined objectives, and uh, this can be seen as a like major drawback of what we are doing. Uh, but in my opinion, you know, uh, what I'm trying to do is well. Uh, for example, my colleague Ettore, he is trying to do to make an artificial life, and he wants uh, he wants open endness. He doesn't want uh, uh, like uh, uh, doesn't want uh, defined objectives. Doesn't want uh, well. He wants open air. He wants diverse solutions. But uh, on the other hand, I started this thinking on a very very practical problems. And uh, to me, I wanted it to be a engineering tool. And uh, like engineering building block that uh, will essentially hope uh, eventually hopefully uh, get become the like uh, base for uh, all human technology so uh, but with engineering you provide the specification and i'm uh, mostly thinking of you know kinds of specific well i i, I try to think about uh, like in terms of motivating examples one of the examples in the very like early days of what uh, that we started from is I was imagining uh, a glue, something like a like a glue that you can uh, sculpt something from, and then uh, you uh, let this sculpture, like you you finish a sculpture, you uh, let it uh, leave it for a few hours, maybe overnight. Maybe you should expose it to sunlight. Maybe you should uh, yeah. drop uh, some chemical that will trigger the process of uh, communication so that those uh, little elements of this glue communicate to each other and remember the global shape so that, uh, like, holographic, holographically, uh, each tiny volume uh, tries to remember the whole shape as good as possible. Mm-hmm. And then you uh, smash it. Uh, into like hundred pieces, put those pieces into some nutrient solution, and then each of those pieces in a, like a couple of days regenerates the uh, full shape. So uh, that's what I was like dreaming about. And uh, to me, it feels like well, probably, probably I can express this type at least uh, like in simulation in a quite small. Uh, grids probably I can express it with uh, with a differentiable objective functions like you have something you want to look like uh, and then you, it's damaged and then it must recover it must remember its shape I did some like tiny experiments in this direction the results were promising just didn't get to uh, finish those but well eventually we'll get back to this another mm-hmm. types of uh, 
like uh, things I'm uh, dreaming about is say uh, car tires. They wear off. Can't they just uh, precisely regenerate the same pattern, like be built out of material that overnight, I don't know, you uh, like pour some liquid on them and they just regenerate their structure? Mm-hmm. Or like uh, say, I don't know, uh, like t- today I was uh, I was uh, thinking uh, mm-hmm. like had a bike bike ride and there was a bicycle ramp. I I like bicycle ramps. Uh, I want them to be all over like city streets. <laughs> and uh, but uh, there was a ramp and there were young trees around and I suspect the trees were uh, planted uh, around the same uh, time that the ramp was constructed. And uh, like, and then in 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 thirty or fifty years, the ramp will degrade heavily, but trees will only be bigger. So uh, can't uh, can't actually trees support the ramp be programmed in a way that they de- develop into this ramp and then they regenerate it. So mm-hmm. uh, that's the kind of and and also I thought okay, this ramp is built out of steel concrete, and it was concrete was probably like brought from there steel was brought from our, I don't know where and the trees were constructed uh, from mostly like carbon and uh, oxygen that was sourced from the air uh, so uh, okay yeah <laughs> the, 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 these these are so yeah. I, I don't want I don't want artificial life I just want uh, mm-hmm. maybe better manufacturing technology. <laughs> Uh, oh, that's more practical, I believe. Yeah, but I'm just as curious. I wanted to like to know more about that silk itself. If you imagine that fabricated, how, how which level should be intelligent? Because in your design, for example, each cell has to be communicated to a certain number of neighbors, so that you can avoid this kind of limitation. And that's really why it's neat what you did. Mm. But when it comes to reality, which mm. level of intelligence for each cell would have to communicate with the neighbor? Mm. Is it could be well, challenging to do a structure like that? Well, uh, I certainly think that real, uh, like organic, uh, real living cells uh, that uh, exist in nature and, you know, uh, compose living organisms, actually much more complex than what we, and execute much more complicated behaviors than our tiny, uh, like uh, five, six, seven, eight uh, thousand parameter neural networks, and I also think. Uh, well, I I suspect uh, I started work on that. I suspect that the policies that we are learning now, you know, uh, our models are very small by uh, the deep learning standards, but actually uh, they are still over parameterized, and I suspect that uh, you can get uh, at least order of magnitude uh, by uh, distilling them into simpler models. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, right now, and uh, actually, well, I don't know, uh, we've submitted, I don't know whether it's going to be accepted or not, uh, a little paper on uh, um, life, And uh, this one talks about uh, reaction diffusion. Uh, essentially, we took a cell automata and uh, we removed this uh, fine grade uh, sensitivity to uh, gradients of uh, concentrations of those, or like gradients of those state vectors, uh, and uh, replaced everything with a diffusion that's just running in parallel with 
uh, reaction. So for reaction part, we leave, we, we left the same two-layer neural network. Uh, so it's not yet uh, real chemical uh, reactions uh, that are modeled, say, by this uh, law of um, mass action law. Uh, but uh, diffusion is well, just plain diffusion. The only thing that uh, we have uh, various uh, diffusion uh, speeds per chemical, and those things. Uh, Turns out you can train those and they execute, at least we managed them to make uh, some pretty non trivial things. Uh, like um, we, and uh, in contrast with neural cell automata, those are completely isotropic. Uh, so, uh, which makes uh, solving tasks like pattern construction much harder because it just doesn't know where well, up and down is and even like uh, mirroring is equivalent. Uh, but uh, turns out that, well, it does texture synthesize pretty well. Uh, and then we did some experiments, uh, well, some very, very basic experiments like uh, pattern persistence, like uh, if everything is diffusing, then uh, even even uh, maintaining particular pattern on a grid requires some work to be done because it's always diffusing and you need to do some reaction in parallel to uh, compensate for it. And uh, there are some funny, uh, like, you know, uh, the most, it was a little bit uh, like this with neural cell automata, but even, even more like this with those reaction diffusions that actually uh, the uh, failure cases are more interesting than the results that we get in. Say for those uh, lasers, I have a funny video when uh, reaction diffusion system is trained to maintain the lizard pattern on a grid. So grid is initialized already with the pattern. And then suddenly some instability happens and this lizard uh, getting another eye. So instead of two, it's yeah. getting three, yeah. eye, three eyes. <laughs> I'm going to ask you that, Kate, because this is kind of stability. I was checking the stability, uh, as you highlighted in your mm -hmm. videos before. I'm, I'm asking about uh, the way the cell itself and the neighbors organizing themselves after maybe damage is happening. It should be in linear geometry or nonlinear geometry. Is this something you think significant to you or not? Because you mentioned mm -hmm. sometimes that sometimes they have a weird eye, big eye, this kind of stability issue. Why is this happening? If you can maybe illustrate more, why do you have this kind of weird or long tail as you highlighted before and still growing that something you don't want. But for example, if we speak about the cell itself at the neighbor, mm -hmm. the shape we can uh, reconstruct in this location, either in linear or non-linear, is significant or not? Or does not make sense at all? You know where, uh, if you are speaking about whether it's, uh, whether it's significant in terms of, uh, okay, uh, currently, say in neural cell automata, our uh, cells perceive the uh, like linear projection of local structure around it. If you mean, uh, if you are talking about this uh, perception of yeah. gradients, uh, then, yeah. well, uh, being able to perceive this uh, uh, local structure is very beneficial in terms of it, they are very easier to train than reaction diffusion ones, for example, that don't perceive those gradients. But on the other hand, uh, it's much more interesting to develop the models that uh, can be, uh, can uh, 
do something, can build structures uh, uh, without uh, perceiving this uh, this uh, like local this lo local structures. And uh, when they like say, uh, well, once again, I'm I know very little about biology. I'm reading books. They those those books are. Uh, all, like providing very many new insights and inspirations. I learned yeah. that bacteria and and also from Twitter, yeah. <laughs> I'm asking stupid questions and uh, like uh, real biologists <laughs> provide answers. And uh, one thing I learned recently that uh, bacteria are too small to perceive gradients, yet they know how to follow the gradients. And turns out that they uh, like. Uh, like stochastically swim back and forth in various random directions, and they mm -hmm. sample the concentrations, uh, and then they, uh, like, uh, through those samples, they, well, they know how to jump into directions of higher concentrations of the thing they want more often into them the negative. So it turns out that you don't have to, uh, like, if you're smart enough, you don't have to be big enough to sample, to perceive this gradient. You can just follow it to, uh, like remembering the short-term history. Okay, and uh, but uh, speaking of patterns and uh, like uh, persistent patterns, uh, this is definitely not something that uh, we consider our main objective. And uh, when uh, this was more of a first test that we wanted to try, uh, the simplest to formalize, but there are uh, way more interesting uh, things like learning behaviors and uh, well, uh, this self-classifying self -classifying, uh, mis digits was one of those uh, uh, experiments uh, when the metaphor was like you have a, a group of people standing on a plane and they're arranged on, in the shape of some digit and uh, there is a dense fog, they can only talk to neighbors, can they figure out the shape that they make? And uh, this is very related to, say, uh, organisms that, uh, well, also fantastic examples from Michael Levin's lectures where you uh, cut uh, a tail out of, like from a lizard, and then you uh, sleep well, on a place where, uh, limb warp and the tail gets remodeled into a limb so it understands that oh I'm in the wrong place I, sh I should change my shape to fit this uh, to fit this location so we were thinking whether we can get some basic distributed uh, cognition and um, MNIST was uh, chosen just because like it's hello world standard uh, that everyone knew and, and everyone knows uh, but um, actually, uh, we want more than that, uh, say, uh, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, electric circuits, uh, you have some like circuit that should perform some function and typically it's uh, this very uh, thin, well-defined structure, but uh, can you have a chip that's, for example, uh, inside, uh, is a random mess and uh, your manufacturing process doesn't allow you to precisely connect uh, particular inputs to particular outputs. So, mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless, and uh, sometimes they 
like some of the elements uh, are allowed to fail, but nevertheless, the whole thing should be working. Like, uh, is it possible? How, how do you design uh, circuits like this? So that's something I uh, think uh, a lot uh, these days. Or say, uh, there, there are works in, like, can you uh, make a reaction diffusion system that will, uh, on its own, from a uniform, uh, like just a uniform mixture and a few points where you uh, somehow mark, I want inputs to be read from these positions and outputs to be to be to to be produced here can this whole structure be programmed in a way so that this uh, cascade of uh, reactions uh, coupled with diffusion will actually build the circuit uh, in place uh, on a chip uh, that's interesting so we close it then we have audience question but we'll take one question before about the immersion behavior when it comes to your facade about that, when it comes to designing uh, your automata, the emergent behavior, do you think there's something, yeah, it's interesting for you how this kind of maybe emergent behavior could happen, or is something still not interesting for the moment? Well, uh, that's where it all started uh, from, you know, classical examples of emergent behaviors like a gray squat reaction diffusion, and well, actually, uh, and uh, Game of Life and all those Fizarum, uh, Polycephalum models, all those fantastic, very, very simple systems uh, that have those uh, interesting and uh, like complex behaviors. But uh, the, the uh, key thing uh, for me was that uh, whenever you want to find the, say, say say you you know which kind of behavior you want say you want it to build the uh like uh, network of roads on a plane and uh the way you do this is you do uh parameters either you do parameter sweep across the like all sets of parameters and pick the behaviors that you uh like or you employ some uh, evolutionarily algorithm or you do some uh, fantastic uh, selecting and breeding work like uh, Berchan does with uh, his linear. Uh, and then uh, basically uh, what I wanted is semi-automatic way of finding parameters that produce the, the desired behavior. So now I'm looking for language uh, to specify those behaviors, best practices to uh, design optimization, best practices to deploying those in the real world. Uh, so that's emergence is where it all started, but I want like I want controllable emergence. And mm -hmm. uh, somehow this uh, relation uh, like between system, uh, local system parameters and its global behavior is something that our mind seems to be completely unprepared to reason yeah. about. Just, uh, well, even like reaction diffusion, two parameters. How come this set of parameters uh, leads to like this interesting like Turing complete behavior? Well, you can, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to visualize those. Well, probably physicists know way more than me about them. 
but at least uh, for my tiny brain, even the system of two parameters, two components, already very hard to reason and to engineer something around it. By the way, other than just sampling those parameters and picking the outcomes you like most. That's a really interesting point. So we go to audience question. Uh, we take a few of them. Uh, the question from Brian. He asks you, what do you think about the development in data efficient model? Do you think there's much um, low hanging fruit in the area of data efficiency? I don't think I'm uh, like uh, competent enough to uh, talk about data efficient models in a sense that uh, what people are doing nowadays and I, I've seen some pretty impressive results coming from these uh, what they call self-supervision uh, line of work and uh, self-supervised pre-training and then deploying uh, uh, deploying on a very very limited training on a very limited data set or this uh, open edge clip uh, zero shot learning but um, well in our uh, from our perspective we are very interested in uh, trying to learn uh, adaptivity trying to learn cognition uh, in uh, our self-organizing systems. But well, uh, all I can admit that uh, we just started and uh, we are not there yet. Well, at least uh, what, what I'm doing. So, uh, and there are very simple experiments that uh, I'm uh, considering along those lines. Like, okay, we have uh, self-classifying uh, and like digits. Can we have a, uh, training that well uh, this is the whole direction of uh, learning to learn when you have uh, training embedded into the optimization loop that you have uh, external loop where you uh, train in the learning algorithm and in a loop then when you're evaluating the learning yeah. algorithms but uh, those well from what we see those are very hard to train at least uh, in my work I'm always trying to be very small and very simple because mm -hmm. i've seen that okay there are people in the world who are training uh giant uh, models on big gpus uh then uh probably they know how to do that very well uh i'll try small models on single gpus so that at least uh, people who don't have big computer uh have something fun to do <laughs> uh, so to to answer the question so yeah data efficient learning we already see interesting results coming from big models and uh from small models uh well there is just very uh little being done in this direction in my opinion and uh hope i, I really hope to see uh one day a bottom-up learner that you know uh, does something uh interesting and uh, smart when you train it in a small configuration and then you take this configuration replicate it multiple times and it yeah. does exponentially smarter like uh, or quadratically more smart things uh I've, i didn't yet see uh cases of this happening but uh, well hope one day this might be the case nice. i have a question from um uh, carlos he asks you do you see any dark application of your work to biological single cell data set. I don't know if we covered part of that. If you don't, 
Mibianser. Do you see? He asked, do you see any direct application of your work to logical uh, single cell dataset? Uh, okay. First of all, I have to admit my ignorance. I've seen uh, this word uh, uh, "single cell da dataset" mm. many times. I know that it's something very important, uh, but unfortunately, I have to admit that I don't know what it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my, my 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 fault. And uh, so, I mean. Probably it uh, undermines a lot of my credibility, but yeah, that's that's what it is. Uh, so, well, as of direct applications to uh, biological uh, data, well, I see direct applications to biology, like uh, once again uh, engineering of those uh, DNA strain reaction chains, and also this work that. Uh, uh, Xenobots work on uh, literally designing this uh, clamping together uh, tiny mm -hmm. organisms from cells. So uh, in this direction, I I see that there that in, there, there should be some pretty direct uh, applications to designing those uh, organisms and hopefully their like mm -hmm. uh, aspects that control their behaviors. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I can't reply about single cells. So. Great. And we have a question from Eli Haskis here. Based on your current research in self-organizing system, do you see a path forward to apply these methods in tasks such as classification, regression, etc., and potentially outperform current state-of-the-art deep learning uh, algorithm in real-world application? Well, uh, I'd be super happy if this happens. Uh, but uh, once again, uh, this might happen, uh, but uh, well, I, I can't promise anything, obviously, yeah. <laughs> and uh, because otherwise I'll have to deliver this. Uh, but what actually, what uh, sometimes I think about uh, what's happening in uh, deep learning, like what's what's stochastic gradient descent? It's mm -hmm. uh, like imagine uh, you are an agent, uh, you have one input and one output, and you also hold a number in your hands, and then. Mm -hmm. Uh, once uh, in a while, you get uh, some signal from the input. You multiply this signal by a number that you hold in hands and send it to output. But also remember the uh, value that came in. Then you wait, 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 and then uh, suddenly from the output there is another value that's coming, and that's a gradient. And you once again multiply this value by the number you're holding in hand and sending it to the input. And then you're taking uh, values you got from the input, uh, your gradient, you multiply them together, uh, you uh, multiply them by some uh, small number that's learning rate, and you subtract it from the number that you are holding in your hand. So this is like very, very local perspective on uh, gradient, uh, like a stochastic gradient descent. And from this perspective, this indeed looks like a self-organizing system. Yeah, very, very simple local behaviors that uh, are locally communicating and enabling uh, this uh, fantastic explosion of applications that we see nowadays. From, from that perspective, uh, is there a more efficient uh, learning uh, procedure? I'm sure there is. Uh, so probably we should try to find it yes uh well yeah. so the, the answer 
from some perspective, I'm, I'm not trying to look at everything from this self-organizing uh, perspective and from this perspective, stochastic gradient descent is a self-organizing system, but not self-organizing enough. You have this uh, synchronous uh, passes, uh, phases of forward propagation, backward propagation. Uh, probably it's possible to perform both of those things in parallel. Probably it's possible to make uh, each of those tiny agents a bit smarter. And there is also work in this, some uh, work in this direction as well. Like uh, a few years ago, there was this um, synthetic gradients paper from DeepMind where they, instead of uh, getting actual gradients and propagating them, they were trying to predict the gradients locally without waiting. Uh, for them to come from the deeper layers and then updating their internal predictors so that you can have this uh, completely uh, asynchronous training and uh, at least in simple mm -hmm. settings th this works. And there is uh, quite some work nowadays in learning to learn domain. Uh, one very interesting insight, well, once again, I'm super bad at remembering names of those, but uh, this was very interesting uh, work uh, coming from Google on. Uh, Using, uh, they, they, they used uh, this uh, like uh, evolution on a, a program that's uh, written in a language of this tensor granular language, something like yeah. basically NumPy. And you have uh, three procedures uh, like uh, setup, uh, train, and, uh, and predict, something like this. And uh, essentially, the genetic algorithm was supposed to uh, design uh, all of those three procedures and give it like uh, using massive amount of computation. They managed to find strategies that were some in some cases probably sometimes slightly outperforming our like uh, standard optimizers. But the most uh, significant outcome for me was. It was comparable, but it, is, it, it was not dramatically better, mm -hmm. uh, which may imply that probably uh, this uh, tensor, well, I don't know, maybe it's this tensor granularity uh, that uh, mm -hmm. this way of thinking with uh, multidimensional arrays rather than individual elements that slow this. I, I don't know what it is. But uh, I'm pretty, pretty often I'm frustrated with uh, tools of differentiable programming that we have because uh, they are all stemming from NumPy and NumPy was fantastic. It was uh, amazing. Yeah. Although, although there are a few, in my opinion, designs uh, like things that should have been designed differently. And now we would have much better infrastructure say naming dimensions, naming array dimensions and operating them like uh, shuffling dimensions by names, folding them by names should have been there right from the beginning. And that's my, my first, but uh, another thing is that this uh, array granular set of operations is very restricting sometimes because uh, even when we uh, map it to GPUs, I know, well, I used to do some graphics programming. I still do some graphics programming. I know that underlying hardware is way more flexible than just being able to perform matrix multiplications. Intricate has this uh, massive amounts of tiny processes. You can have very fine grained control uh, that you can do like those fantastic ray tracing, shading, all that. And uh, sometimes 
uh, when you try to uh, utilize those uh, like often when you do not something non-trivial with uh, PyTorch, TensorFlow, Jax, you get pretty huge performance penalties. Mm -hmm. I found one framework that is very different from the others. It's uh, Tai Chi, the yeah. Tai Chi graphics. Uh, I used to experiment with it a few months ago. Now I'm uh, a little bit like doing some different stuff, but I'll get back to different, uh, get back to this uh, definitely because, for example, uh, my uh, the same thing implemented uh, with Tai Chi and uh, say uh, Jax it was Fizarum Polycephalon simulation and somehow Tai Chi version was uh, I don't know almost order of magnitude faster. And the second question uh, we have also a question from Dave. What Python learning uh, resource do you recommend to learn about generative algorithms? Oh, hard to hard to say well learn about I, I don't know <laughs> like uh, there is uh, just the, 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 there is just so much so much yeah. there uh, okay uh, learning about generative algorithms mm. well what 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 I suggest is probably it just uh, to me it feels a little bit two different things. There are generative algorithms and there is Python. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, well, Python is very convenient way to do some things and not that convenient way to do some other things. Uh, but um, learning resources, uh, you know, uh, actually recently I stumbled upon Mm. A number of YouTube ch channels that does super, like fantastic job explaining uh, explaining uh, uh, generative, uh, say like generative systems uh, and those emergent systems. And I may try to. Well, I don't know if it works. I just don't have the links uh, at hand. If it works, I can just try to assemble a set of links to. Okay. Uh, yeah, and if it's possible to somehow attach it to the podcast. Uh, yeah, sure, absolutely. It would be helpful for many people as well. I think that's something very interesting. So thank you if you can do that. Yeah. And the last question from, um, I hope it's right, uh, Anil, he's asking you, well, he has a couple of questions. First one, assuming you are uh, a computer science student, if you had six months to learn machine learning online, what would you do? The first question. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, six months to learn machine learning. Uh, mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. so uh, probably uh, what I would recommend is uh, I don't know well you know when you. <laughs> give advice, I guess it uh, you're getting some responsibility. Uh, so the first thing that I did when I uh, got uh, like realized that in order to well, uh, I must learn how the neural networks work and I must learn computer vision. Mm -hmm. uh, so so 
so, sorry, not computer vision. I already knew something about computer vision. I, I, I realized that I must learn how machine learning works. Uh, what I did, I implemented the uh, backprop uh, uh, and network training on a simple task from scratch uh, in a very like low level setting. So uh, either it can be C and can be uh, like low level NumPy, so without automatic uh, differentiation. Mm -hmm. But just to get a get a sense of what uh, backprobe does and what's uh, actually uh, speaking of Jack's good thing that it uh, exposes some very uh, like basic details of what's of their transformations they are doing with the code and uh, very important thing that actually like backprobe is popular but there is also forward propagation for automated differentiation that mm -hmm. uh, is also useful in some cases. So what I would recommend is. Uh, take some uh, simple setting and implement a uh, thing from scratch. It wouldn't take that much time. Actually, uh, the programs that, uh, like, if you uh, like uh, remove the uh, scalability questions and uh, universality, uh, actually, many things that uh, the core ideas. Can be implemented like a couple of hundreds lines of C code, not even Python code, C code. So uh, sometimes I uh, have this, uh, you know, uh, thought experiment of uh, getting a USB stick with uh, a few pre trained neural networks from our time and traveling back uh, in time in ancient, ancient times, like 10 years ago. Mm. And uh, I don't, and, and showing, okay. Uh, here is a uh, like hundred uh, lines C program, and here is uh, like uh, twenty megabytes of coefficients. And yes, you can run this on computers of your time. It will not be real real time, but a couple of seconds per inference. It's okay, <clears throat> and they will probably I don't know. Uh, they, they they will say that uh, this came from aliens. No way, uh, no way those problems uh, could be solved on computers mm -hmm. of our time. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I think uh, having those very uh, taking stuff and implementing it in low level is very helpful to understand what's going on. And also, it provides perspective on what are the design choices that are pretty like deliberate. So, stuff that uh, worked when we first tried and we stick to using it, although there might be other variants. Yeah. Should matrix multiplication be there? Uh, very like uh, co-building blocks of everything we do, or maybe there are other variants. Variants. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's prob that's probably my yeah. recommendation. It actually has a, has a lot of questions for you. The second one, I thank you so much for saying that. This is something very beneficial what you say. The second part also we ask is you, what are some habits that you makes you effective on daily basis? I think in the context of being uh, what you do. What are some work habits oh. that make you effective on a daily basis? Oh my god! Oh my god! Uh, actually, <laughs> I can consider myself to be so ineffective on a daily basis, <laughs> and <laughs> I procrastinate so much. So mm. you probably shouldn't take my advice on that. <laughs> uh, that's something I'm I'm trying to work on, but uh, mm. there is always you know a million things running in parallel, and you. Take a, 
like make a tiny bit of that, tiny bit of that, spend a lot of time just agonizing on what should I do now? Should I require this email or should I uh, like try this experiment I had in mind for quite a while? So, uh, sorry, I'm pretty bad at uh, being efficient. I don't know what to say. And the third question I ask you is, are there any niche ML machine learning area you think warrants more exploration? No, we have such a Canberra explosion in all areas. But okay, well, I consider what I do pretty niche area. <laughs> so <laughs> my niche area definitely, definitely needs more exploration. And uh, actually, I want, well, uh, I sign up to make a little tutorial uh, on uh, differentiable self-organization with a life. And actually, uh, I plan to dedicate a large part of it to uh, just uh, listing uh, experiments and open problems that I personally want to uh, be, be done or see someone do. So, uh, well, mm -hmm. as you. of now, I, I know my niche area and it needs more exploration. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And the fourth question I ask is you, how will NFTs and similar initiative impacts hiring creative ML machine learning talent over the coming decades. NFTs, oh my god. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, there was uh, I have a funny story about NFTs. Okay. Uh, I've got a request from a reporter uh, of like I live in like near Zurich in Switzerland. And uh, I got a request recently of a reporter that wanted me to talk about NFTs. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, I think, like, I, I need a couple of NFTs on this thesis blockchain proof of work thing. But, well, just for fun, basically just, just trying to understand what's all, the, what's all the buzz about it. And uh, suddenly... Uh, they didn't want to talk with me about uh, visual, visualizing and interpreting neural networks. They didn't want to talk with me about self-organizing systems. Oh, they want to talk with me about NFTs. Sorry, I don't want to talk about NFTs. Uh, so, uh, well, I, now I can say that probably uh, to me, uh, NFTs are like uh, signed uh, Postcards, they are worthless on its own. Like they cost, well, if they are on proof of stake chain, they cost nothing, you, almost nothing to make. And they're like uh, signed postcards that, uh, but some people find uh, them to be like signed postcards to be valuable objects for collection. Well, if so, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. And the sixth question, if you were to hire someone without a degree, what would you look for? Uh, well, mm. I know uh, many people, like uh, on, on the internet, I see plenty of people doing fantastic work uh, and not having a degree. So for me, degree is probably never, well, to be fair, uh, I also don't, don't have a PhD. And uh, that probably explains my ignorance in many aspects. Uh, but uh, what is, I think, uh, so probably the work 
that's done and the creativity matters way mm. more than way more than phd i think that's really interesting part thank you for sharing that alex because i think there's a lot of discussion about uh, yeah in phd sometimes you have the credential to be creative which is not necessary you know it was not i i do share the opinion with you but i don't know why sometimes if you don't want to do a phd why you should do it in the first class i don't well, know what uh, reason sometimes if people would like after that. If you are a creative person and you can do something and prove yourself, so, um, unless you want to be in academia, so I, I don't think in industry you should have it, or maybe that's a question. Well, uh, my personal story was that, uh, so I finished my master's. At that moment, I was already working in some commercial company. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed doing what I was doing and uh, uh i was doing computer vision and then uh, there was a moment that i thought oh probably i need to get more like academic background i need to maybe do a phd so i quit and uh then spend a year in my like from university doing a phd and somehow well in my case i don't know it just somehow didn't didn't fit well at least uh i don't want to uh blame anyone or anything it felt to me that uh in industry you uh like uh, make a, you you must make a thing that works otherwise uh, just clients will not buy it and in academia you need to make you some well i i, I could say often I say, you sometimes need to make things look good on paper so that yeah. they're like publishable but it doesn't uh it should look as if it's working, although sometimes it might be not that uh, good as you describe it. And uh, that's why I uh, returned back to industry. I can understand and I agree with you. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, last part of the question, do you have any book or other resource that you would recommend to senior ML practitioner to improve their craft? Book? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, a lot of uh, for me there was one book that uh, was very influential to me but it's not about machine learning it's about mm -hmm. computer vision that was my passion for quite a while and it's uh, computer vision by Richard uh, Zeliski which is available for free to download from his website and uh, I recently learned that uh, well the one I read was from uh, 2010 and now he made the next edition which uh, describes all the exciting advances that we've had in vision since then including machine learning uh, yeah. which was one of the core applications uh, of, so, 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 uh, computer vision was one of the core applications for which and this book at this gave me a very broad overview on uh, well working with data and uh, signal processing and well at least uh, this is not really a book about machine learning but th that's one that was influential for me um, but uh, apart from that well I already promised to make a little list of materials which I find useful so <laughs> and uh, the final question what would be the best advice was given to you and was a life changing advice to give it to you and it's life changing maybe oh. like to... <laughs> uh, 
that's a hot question. Um, okay, advice. Advice. Yeah. It's given to you, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, no, it's uh, just probably as I'm. <laughs> As I'm getting more and more mature, I, I should say that uh, maintaining good uh, health and sleep habits are very important. <laughs> and uh, things that uh, you get, uh, like uh, your body forgives you for, say, not like uh, going uh, to sleep very late or not sleeping full nights when you once you're young, and then suddenly you just can't do those things. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, should account for that. Uh, yeah. but, True. Well, I think that's something we have to keep in mind. So thank you once again, Alex, for this brilliant and neat work. It was really enjoyable to listen to you. And thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for being with us on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting.